I'm Afshin Ratatsi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. Today marks 20 years since the USA and Britain launched an unprovoked invasion of Iraq, which would lead to tens of millions killed, wounded, or displaced in wars throughout the region and beyond. The Iraq invasion was characterized by a new type of military strategy, shock and awe, defined by using overwhelming force to break the perceived enemy's will to resist. No NATO power would officially count the number of Iraqi civilians killed. It's now routine across most of humanity to quote Iraq, let alone Afghanistan, Libya and Syria, nations in Africa and Latin America, as emblematic of how the Ukraine conflict today is now seen as the birth of a new world order. Well, the national security strategist behind the shock and awe doctrine, Dr. Harlan Ullman, joins me for today's episode from Washington, D.C. He's actively advised U.S. government officials and heads of governments around the world, as well as NATO strategic commanders and secretaries general. He's the current senior advisor of the Atlantic Council and chair of the Kilowin Group. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. So it's 20 years since, since this uh, seismic uh, change in the world. Uh, you designed shock and awe. How do you reflect on it today? The shock and awe that we designed, and I was part of a group of people who had actually fought in Desert Storm, as well as Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, who was a, a member of the group. The shock and awe that we designed was not the shock and awe that General Tommy Franks administered. What Franks did was a desert storm sort of massive attack on steroids. If the real shock and awe had been used, we would have tried to depose Saddam Hussein without firing a shot. And where we would have started was to determine whether or not Saddam actually had weapons of mass destruction, which I never believed advised the government. And the reason, in many ways, why Saddam was reluctant to admit that was that he didn't want to tell his enemies and many of his generals he was absolutely naked. But the point is that Desert Storm was the model for Iraqi freedom in 2003. It was not shock and awe. Tommy Franks, the general, used that as a slogan, I'm going to put in shock and awe. And the day the attack started, there was a full-page photograph in the Daily Telegraph in England of a bomb going off in Baghdad with the caption, Baghdad Blitz. And at that stage, shock and awe sunk without trace. Well, it's funny you mentioned WMD because um, uh, David Frum, I think, has a piece in the Atlantic magazine where he still maintains that, uh, that Saddam had some sort of chemical warheads. He's still not admitting it uh, t today, which is, which is quite shocking. You know that I'm speaking to you from the Middle East, so it, it has a lasting impact with these tens of millions uh, that were displaced, killed or wounded in the region because arguably Syria uh, was uh, to be uh, affected by that invasion, as were other countries in the Middle East. You had already previously been talking about the way uh, the United States, I think the ABM Treaty uh, withdrawal was before uh, the Iraq war. But uh, obviously the withdrawal from the JCPOA with Iran, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces deal, uh, why do you think the United States has been acting in the way it has since the turn of this century and uh, now routinely talked about in the Global South as, you know, a dying empire? If you go back to Vietnam, uh, the United States has operated on lack of knowledge and understanding of the situations in which we were using force. There was no second Gulf of Tonkin incident USS Turner Joy and USS Maddox were not fired upon in the second incident. 
and yet that was the basis for the August 2, 1964 Tonkin Gulf incident, which got us into Vietnam, uh, one of the many foreign policy blunders that we continued. And then the lessons were supposed to be learned after the, what, six million killed in Lao Cambodia and Vietnam? And understanding. Uh, for example, you, you rightly pointed out George W. Bush abrogated the uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty because he was super consumed with the possible threat of missiles from Iran. And part of that was to put Aegis Ashore anti-ballistic missiles in Europe in several locations, which infuriated the Russians because they knew that Iran was not going to have a threat and they feared that those missiles could be used against their strategic systems. This was another case of a lack of knowledge and understanding. And perhaps the biggest blunder, unfortunately, that George Bush made beyond the Iraq war was in 2008 at the NATO summit in Bucharest, Romania, when Georgia and Ukraine were not allowed to join the NATO membership action plan. As a throwaway line, Bush said, but of course, one day they can join NATO. That became the record. Vladimir Putin was there. Putin was there and was furious. I was in the room. And Bush tried to confront or console Putin, putting an arm around him and said, look, Vlad, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. And Putin used the same language that Bush's father had used when Saddam had invaded Kuwait, saying, George, this will not stand. Several months later, he laid a trap in Georgia. Uh, President Shakespeare bit and the Russians bit off parts of South Ossetia. And I think that was the turning point. From that point on, I think Putin regarded the Americans as not only unreliable, but dismissive, and holding the Russians in, in uh, very, very lack of regard. I mean, clearly, the, clearly there's a lot of uh, antagonism with Putin in Russia as to why it took him so long and the South Ossetia conflict to understand that. Uh, as we know, I mean, there was a lot of pressure on him to intervene in Donbass, uh, something that he was reluctant to do, as far as we know. You keep insulting, in a way, a vast swathe of... Uh, de facto, that's what you're doing. Washington think tanks, uh, the uh, bureaucracy of the State Department, you're insulting the National Security Agency's analysts, or maybe you're saying there are some good ones there who are not being listened to. In the current environment right now, I know that you talked to a friend of the show, Antonio Scaramucci, Trump's old press secretary, for a short while, saying Bill Burns, Kissinger, Kerry, these people should not necessarily be, uh, you know, ordering around the Biden administration, but they should be uh, taken into account, their views. Uh, what do you think of the current uh, group think, is it, or uh, analysis of what's happening in Europe uh, in Blinken's State Department or in, uh, in the White House? First, let me take issue. I was not insulting the national security apparatus. I was providing what I thought was positive criticism. Uh, you don't disregard the entire apparatus, but what happens at the top? Presidents make decisions, and life is very, very narrow at the top. George Bush had this notion of the freedom agenda and this axis of evil, North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. There could probably not be a more... Uh, <laughs> disagreeable group of people to work with. And so you have presidents who come up with these ideas. Uh, Donald Trump, who should have taken a course in economics, felt that the trade imbalance with China of $400 billion a year warranted uh, tariffs 
when in fact the other part, if you took economics, is called not the current account, but the capital account, China had more than two or three trillion dollars invested in America. In defense and of so Trump, he, he killed a lot of people. In defense of Trump, okay, he killed a lot of people and he put a lot of weaponry in places, but he didn't start any wars like Obama did. Well, I'm not sure Obama really started any war except... I think Libya was, Libya was quite a big... Africa's Libya, richest... Yeah. And the problem capital. there again was, was knowledge and understanding because the Benghazis were not under threat from Gaddafi. And so there is a repeat in American foreign policy, whether it's Republican or Democrat in charge, going back to Vietnam, that our lack of knowledge and understanding at the top get us into trouble. And you can just chart how that's happened. And so how do you fix it? I've come up with an awful lot of ideas about how to fix it. Most importantly, a red team to challenge seriously all the assumptions. And right now, I think your viewers or listeners will know that the Congress has established a select committee on China and the strategic competition with the Communist Party of China. I think groupthink is going to take over. One of the very few issues that members of Congress agree upon is the Chinese threat. But nobody has defined sufficiently what exactly the Chinese threat is, except China has become the enemy. We can't work with them. And I think that may well be true. But if we repeat the past errors and in having insufficient knowledge and understanding, I fear that we are headed in the wrong direction at a time when this is the, the most difficult strategic environment the United States has faced since World War II. Unlike the Cold War, we're facing a peer or near-peer economic superpower with nuclear weapons and the largest military in Asia. At the same time, we're facing a nuclear superpower that's also an energy giant that has declared war on Ukraine. We are not used to dealing with two potential enemies or adversaries of that level. And during the Cold War, we could talk about two scorpions in a jar. Now you might think that there are three. And so far, we haven't been able to put in place any kind of intellectual framework to deal with this new challenge. That bothers me considerably. You should see the red team are going underground. I never get a word in edgeways. Uh, I noticed you were on panels in Washington, D.C., talking about your latest book. I think you mentioned the red team idea there. And every time, some top diplomats, people very well connected in the military-industrial complex say, yeah, Harlan makes some good points. Uh, obviously, some cannot be executed in any way. Is the red team one the one they don't want you uh, allowing anywhere near the White House or in the... State Department, the idea no, of having an opposition team there? What's happened, what's happened, unfortunately, is the political debate in Washington has become so zero-sum that you're either with us or against us. And once one party makes up its mind, that is going to be the decision that focuses everything. George W. Bush, you're either with me or against me. That's how we got Colin Powell to give that testimony on the 5th of February at the UN in 2003. And so, unfortunately, the pernicious nature of the politics in America, which are unbelievably partisan and divisive, probably uh, as bad as any time since the Civil War, make any kind of alternative views very difficult. And so putting a red team in place, which I think is essential in the National Security Council in the White House, is probably not going to be done because that would leak and all of a sudden uh, dissent from inside the administration will be taken by the other side as weakness. So the political system here is such that uh, knowledge and understanding, truth and fact 
are among the victims, and that's a very bad position to be in. Of course, journalists rely on dissent and the occasional dissenting voice and, and leaker. You, you mentioned Vietnam a few times, and Seymour Hersh has been on this show uh, quite a few times, most recently about his Nord Stream piece. What do you make of the idea that uh, Vladimir Putin hasn't really responded uh, militarily to an infrastructure attack on a Russian pipeline, and nor has Chancellor Schultz to a vital energy component of Europe's uh, infrastructure. Well, it's a bit it's a bit embarrassing because all the evidence suggests that this was done by pro-Ukrainian forces. Now you know you don't believe Moscow. that either, right? I mean, you you know that's, I mean, that looked like a setup. Piece. I, I actually tend to believe there there may be some truth in that, quite frankly. Dr. Harlan Ullman, I'll stop you there. More from the architect of shock and awe and the chair of the Kilowen Group after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the shock and awe architect and senior advisor of the Atlantic Council, Dr. Harlan Ullman. But let's just go back to Nord Stream, because Seymour Hersh has been yeah. on this show and you've seen his reaction to the story that was leaked to Desight and to uh, the New York Times. And it was, even the New York Times had to go apparently and suggest. And uh, it's been said by so many experts that uh, the kind of explosive devices having to be used show that there is no way. This was, I mean, as, as the United States said at the beginning, this is a state actor. Now, if I, indeed it is... So you don't believe it's the Biden administration that did it? Oh, that's absurd. That's absolutely, because I don't think we're, first of all, competent enough to do that, but that's an aside. Look, Cy Hirsch has been so discredited on so many things. Name one I thing. Give him Name one thing. The only thing he ever got right was me lie, and that was well known. But we're not going to discuss Hirsch, what I'm talking no, about. No, but I don't, I don't think you should... Uh, he's seen as the greatest journalist, one of the greatest journalists in all of history. I don't know whether you think the Abu Ghraib scandal... Are you kidding? By who? Iraq. By journalists. Uh, by who? By well, not journalists. Come on, that's an exaggeration. Abu Ghraib. Let's go back. Let's go Abu Ghraib prison let's in Iraq. That wasn't... A f we saw the pictures of, that he released of the torture by American soldiers in Abu Ghraib. The yeah. Watergate hearings. It wasn't just... It mass wasn't surveillance. Just, it wasn't, look, I don't want to talk about Seymour Hersh. I got better things to talk about. The point here is that in information age, it is very easy to affect opinion. One of the things that Brexit did with Dominic Cummings, who worked, as you know, um, for Boris Johnson, was to sway the million or so uh, British voters who had not registered with either party. The Russians also influenced Brexit. The Russians also tried to influence U.S. elections, in part because wait, they wait, wait, You've just read the Mueller report. I was, I was invited on the BBC about that, and they had to... The Mueller report showed that there was no uh, conceivable, perceived interference in U.S. elections. Let's get off this uh, topic, clearly, because, uh, you know, I, I've read the Mueller report, I've done a lot of work on it, and it showed there wasn't any... I mean, there were a few trolls, social media. I mean, this was to do with structural changes in the American demographic. Um, Trump, I mean, you don't believe Trump was a but Russian the fact, agent, The fact right? is that social media, social media and propaganda are being use, used every single day. And it's an instrument of policy that the Russians have been very, very effective at using, and you cannot deny that. You this don't believe Trump was a Russian agent, do you, or the Steele report? 
I think I think he was a useful idiot. And if you read the Mueller report carefully and the third part, Mueller laid out more than enough grounds for conviction. Please explain to me how Oleg Deripaski bought a piece of real estate in Palm Beach from Trump valued at $20 million, for which he paid $100 million. I think Trump was viewed, as I said, a useful idiot. Was he conspiring with Russia? No. But they saw that they could try to exploit him, as they would with other people. And from their perspective, that was quite smart. Well, it was a disaster, given all the deals that Trump pulled out with from Russia and all the armaments he put into Ukraine, breaking and testing the Minsk agreement to... Uh, uh, destruction, uh, some might say. Let's get on to the idea of economic sanctions. Uh, sure. Is it over for U.S. sanctions as a weapon of war? I mean, uh, I read the other day, actually, that uh, Russian mere credit cards can be used in Havana. Uh, given what has happened with these sanctions, uh, many people saying the European Union has sanctioned itself. Uh, I know you predicted bread lines in Russia. Uh, we actually see the ruble, the highest performing currency. We see massive trade flows between China, Russia, the global south, BRICS, Latin America, Africa. Has it been a huge mess, the sanctions regime now? Yeah, look, sanctions rarely work. They might have worked in the case of South Africa years ago against apartheid. But these are weapons that are used, which if they ever have effect, it takes a long time. They have double-edged swords, for example. Our sanctions and tariffs against China have hurt U.S. consumers more than they've hurt the Chinese. So why do they do them? I mean, surely they can see that in the State Department or in the Treasury. Janet Yellen surely realizes that. Because you've got to do something. You're not going to use military force. You are really limited, and at least you can say we're trying to punish the other side. So what you do is to try to draw the ire of the opposing political party who doesn't accuse you of appeasing, of appeasement, or weakness, and so we're putting sanctions on as if that's going to work. Sanctions don't work. The way that we needed to deal with Ukraine, and don't tell me that that <laughs> that Trump provided them with all this weaponry, because he certainly did not. He withheld some. The fact of the matter is we were too slow in providing Ukraine with the weapons that I think were needed to try to bring Russia to the negotiating table. This war has got to end with negotiation, and it's got to end soon, because ultimately Russia's size and strength, I'm afraid, will prevail. Uh, Ukraine is taking a hell of a beating. Can I just sorry, I sorry, Howie? You said that more weapons should be supplied to Ukraine while accepting that Russia has overwhelming force. I mean, surely just more weapons for Ukraine then means the obliteration of Ukraine, doesn't it? No. The point is that over time, as I said, Russia ultimately has the ability to outlast Ukraine. Here's a question for you. Tell me what the situation in Ukraine is going to be like on November 2024 or 2025 or 2026. And tell me that you really believe that Ukraine will still be a functioning state on the current course. That's a very, very difficult answer to but, make. But and that's I'm a Putin apologist thing to say. Huh? That's exactly what the uh, Kremlin and the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia says, says what you just said. Well, there's a, th a certain thing. No, don't, don't <laughs> Putin apologist. That's terrific. Uh, look, um, there's a certain thing called reality. We have been derelict, in my mind, in not providing the Ukrainians, what they need quickly enough. We've been doing this piecemeal. Please tell me what the Biden strategy is towards Ukraine. I don't know what it is. And please show me the plan of action of providing the necessary equipment to Ukraine. I don't think we have one. Yeah, a few tanks, 300 tanks. How long is it going to take to get there? 
the M1 tanks from America probably aren't going to get there for a year. So please tell me what our strategy is towards Ukraine. I don't know, and the administration has not been forthcoming. Perhaps it thinks it wanna keeps it secret. That's fine. But I do not know what our strategy is, and I do not know what the plan of action is to sustain Ukraine. Well, what you just said just doesn't appear on ABC News, CBS News, that kind of analysis, maybe very occasionally. Why is that? Why are the American people not being asked to, uh, to, to question things? When, when, you were, when you were a young man, you may remember... I am a US young man. <laughs> you may remember they were an hour long and they had real news. In those days, and we're talking 50 years ago, the news bureaus were loss leaders because they were prestigious. Today, news is just what can be sold. And so the amount of real news you're getting on the 30-minute programs is nonsense. And very few people watch PBS or the, uh, the other networks, uh, cable, where this is being discussed. So the problem is that as, as, as media has become a huge profit line, the news has suffered. And very rarely do you get full reports outside cable news. And in some cases, when you have cable channels, whether they're CNN or Fox, some of that reporting is also quite skewed. Truth and fact, unfortunately, have become victims. Well, I, was, I mean, this wasn't even truth or fact we were talking about. It was just a question that was, uh, you know, wanting to be posed. I don't know whether you have investments in the big arms companies, but the shares have skyrocketed. And the more you look into this war, the increased uranium imports to the United States from Russia, the idea of Russia paying Ukraine for the pipeline usage of oil uh, to the European Union, the interconnections in this war, the European Union paying money to Russia for the bullets being used in Ukraine. Uh, why, uh, why, I mean, the only benefit seems to be the arms companies, but at the same time, geopolitical strategy of the kind that you write about, you write books about, has nothing to do with it, in a way, and, and le until someone settles down and realizes that, uh, well, certainly the United States and NATO aren't particularly benefiting out of this. Uh, as Lenin said, there are contradictions, comrade, and there are contradictions everywhere, and you point out some of the issues. Look, the Europeans are dependent upon Russian energy, period. And that applies very much in Germany, where there is a soft spot for Russia for those reasons. Uh, if you go a step further, the bulk of members of the United Nations, and if you do it by population, are not on the side of the US and the West and Ukraine. We don't understand that. In the United States, there has always been the notion of this exceptionalism since World War II, and in many ways, an arrogance that we know better than other people. And unfortunately, that has not played out well in Vietnam or in Iraq or in Afghanistan or elsewhere. And so the issue, very frankly, is that the political system is such that when one side says A, the other side says not only hell no, but even stronger dissent. And so it's very, very difficult coming up with a really sensible geostrategic policy because, first of all, it's difficult to explain. And secondly, it's very, very difficult to implement. And I would argue that since the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, we really haven't had a very, very solid uh, foreign policy or defense policies that are very much predicated on ideas being able to contain, deter, and if war comes defeat, none of which have really worked. We really haven't done a good job of detaining or deterring China or Russia. And if we get into a war that could be nuclear, nobody's gonna win a nuclear war.
So we've got to go back to first principles. And doing that in America today, sadly, is extremely difficult. Well, nothing what you just said there uh, rings a bell when I read Atlantic Council stuff and you're an advisor to them. I mean, John Bolton comes on this show and says uh, we should show more force against Russia and China and the only reason things are as they are is because we didn't... Uh, I mean, some of the things he advocates, uh, you can people can look at our interviews with John Bolton. I mean, seeing as you're uh, obviously a very different type of Atlantic Council advisor then, how would you advise... Putin and Xi Jinping to take advantage of this situation. I mean, they clearly are taking advantage. Uh, if you put a, if you were uh, born in, you know, Shenzhen or uh, Saint Petersburg, and you were fighting for one of those countries, how would you now uh, want to uh, advise your leaders to take advantage? Given, as you've described it, NATO is in disarray. Well, let me turn that around because I don't want to give aid and comfort to the Moscow invasion. <laughs> but how would I advise the United States? Look, we have a flawed strategy. The fundamental issue that we face, as I've argued before, are massive attacks of disruption and even small acts of disruption. Look at Silicon Valley Bank. Dow was down almost a thousand points. And then it went up. <laughs> and then it went down. But the point is that you have these huge disruptions. Don't we understand that COVID has killed more Americans and died in every battle that we fought since 1775? So we've got these issues of disruption. What we need to do is to change our view in terms of our number one goal needs to be prevention of disruption. This applies to Russia and China. Deterrence does not work except in terms of preventing a nuclear war that nobody wants. So we've got to be able to prevent what Russia and China are doing that's against our interest. The way we yeah, do that... Yeah, but it that seems like... that. I'm sorry to interrupt because we're running out of time. And, I mean, that seems no. to suggest military activity. I mean, if the climate crisis is the worst uh, horseman of the apocalypse, I know you named five in your uh, most recent uh, book, obviously the pandemic you just mentioned, the U.S. military is the, one of the biggest fossil fuel polluters on Earth. I don't know what these submarines Biden is sending to Australia are going to do, uh, let alone the aircraft carriers and increased uh, defense... Uh, Strategy. The Nord Stream attack was obviously the greatest methane attack uh, event uh, emission in, in history. I mean, does the United States really care about the environment? Does anyone on the Hill care about it really if they're spending all this money? Yeah, I think that there's the issue. That's a good point. First of all, uh, nuclear power is by far the, the safest environmental form of energy. And the, the submarines are talking about a nuclear power, so they are not going to they are not going to pollute the environment. And nuclear power is indeed safe. Uh, what you're talking about is a difficult issue of climate change because we've not been able to put in place a sensible energy problem of policy that understands that you're going to need to use fossil fuel as you develop alternative systems. And we've not been able to do that. And you have one party, the Republicans, have come out against all this, and the Democrats have doubled down. So we have the worst of all worlds. Yes. Climate change is potentially an existential crisis, but the way you deal with that is through common sense, and we're not doing common sense. Joe Biden goes ahead with a Willow Project to develop Alaskan oil, which is fine. On the other hand, he shuts off a great deal of the Arctic, and people say, well, this is a contradiction. No administration has been able to come up with a sensible policy on the environment, and that's the problem. There needs to be compromise, and one of the issues here is that compromise and civility for virtually every political issue are missing in action. And without oh. compromise and civility, the Constitution will not work. Dr. Harlan Norman, thank you. We'll obviously have to have you on again. 
quite soon. And that's it for the show. We'll be bringing you brand new episodes every Saturday and Monday, so stay tuned. Meanwhile, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you very soon.